Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a unique map of our potential, from the mundane to the mystical. Some practitioners and teachers are human design purists. Others have a style that feels like a unique and varied tapestry that is continually weaving many threads of discovery together. Today we sit with Rosie Aronson, a true synthesizer who has developed her own way of teaching and working with clients. She's a powerful and enthusiastic author, artist, guide, and spiritual counselor who is a true inspiration and ally. She has authored Walking a Fine Line, How to Be a Professional Wisdom Keeper in the Healing Arts, and has created the Wisdom Keeper's Oracle Deck and numerous self-discovery courses. She describes herself as an avid permission giver, pressure dissolver, and embracer of the unknown, who believes we are literally designed to blossom. And the more each of us radically trusts, honors, and expresses our true nature, the more magic we can create together. Her brightness is contagious and still inclusive of shadow and complexity. She shares her perspective on human design, gene keys, the intersection of activism, mysticism, and creativity, and the adventures her own path has revealed. We loved the conversation with her, which felt like it could have gone on for days, and we hope you enjoy getting to know her. We're so happy to have you here today, Rosie. You're just one of my most favorite people and a real creative and nourishing inspiration in life. So thanks for being with us. I wanted to start by asking about, I have this sense of you as being someone who's had a really creative winding path in life where you've explored a lot of different things and studied a lot of different things. I'm wondering if there was a moment, I don't know what your early years were like, but I'm wondering if there was a moment or some time in your life when you realized, I'm not going to be living a normal life, whatever I might've thought normal was. (laughs) Like what, I'm just curious if there was like a moment when you realized you know, you were going to be going this sort of alternative path in life or where you were going to have to go your own way, I guess, whether that was a moment or a process. I'm curious if you can speak to that a little bit. Sure. Happy to do that. And thank you both for including me in your beautiful creative venture. Um, It was so funny, Amy, when you said that, you said, I wonder if there was a moment in your life where you had this thought. And in my mind, I thought, I had the same thought. I'm like, the moment I realized that I wasn't normal. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I, I knew where you were going with that. Yeah. that. That has been a constant realization in my life over and over and over again. Oh, wait a second. I'm really, I'm not normal. I'm like, I'm never going to fit in <laughs> ever. Yeah. It's funny too. Like it, I'll just start with a little human design here, just because that's what I'm thinking is that the 47 line three, which is my, in Gene Keys language, my life's work in human design language, it's personality sun. And it's all about moving through various forms of oppression in order to discover that you are okay. And so there's something about the realization that I may not be normal, but I'm okay. Mm-hmm. So I think those two things together have been an ongoing theme in my life. And I, I mean, even from when I was very little, I was always really interested in things that other people weren't. You know, I just mm-hmm. remember like, you know, getting the ESP book or being into the reincarnation movies with um, Barbara 
Streisand and <laughs> just like, very interested in the occult. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I grew up in a kind of a Jewish humanistic family, very service oriented. But my mother was not a woman of faith. You know, she, it wasn't about faith or spirituality or anything like that. It was more about we're human. Who knows if there's a God? Let's take care of each other here on earth. And yet I still got kind of like a Jewish upbringing and went to synagogue and bought mitzvah and all that kind of stuff. I was always doubting. Like I'd pour through the Bible and be like, what the, what the fuck? <laughs> it didn't make fun to me. It didn't resonate with me. And the same thing in school, I always felt like there's something missing here. So like ever since I can remember, this has been a theme. I would say when I got to college and that meant moving out of my loving, totally crazy household, you know, we've got these interpersonal dynamics that were super kooky, but also really big hearts, like loving, loving people, which I think also made me a discerner from the beginning. Like no, nothing was easy. Nothing was simple. Nobody was good or bad. It was all one big puzzle. But once I left my home and I went to school in Ann Arbor, like things started opening up for me. So I like, I learned about transpersonal psychology. I got very involved in social change, the women's studies movement. And I started seeing things more and more outside of the conventional framework. Stop shaving my legs, you know. <laughs> so I started meditating. And then I, I went to study abroad. I went to study abroad in Spain, which is actually really interesting because I think I was in Spain during the supernova in 87. That's no kind problem. of connected to the human design birth process, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh -huh. There might have been some seeds planted in there. Mm. And that's where I met this anarchistic Danish visionary artist. That was like the moment where I like totally got off the conventional pathway. Because I always kind of had this sort of weird private life where I was exploring the forbidden, the occult, all that stuff. But this time, it forced me into the public with that. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, um, I finished, I did finish my degree, but then we went off to Europe and, you know, I was painting and I got involved in all kinds of primal screen therapies and new age and new thought. And, you know, boy, did he have a shadow, but he was living in the light. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, was, he was an anarchist. He only had one pair of pants. He totally trusted in the invisible forces of the universe to guide him through his path. So he was an incredible teacher in many ways, even though he was also a bit nutty. He had done, he was much older than me. He was, he had done way too much acid. And uh, so he was a little bit unstable, let's just say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what it did was it, it got me out of that trap. Because I, I would have gotten my BA and then I would have gotten my PhD and then I blah, 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 blah. But instead... I went on this incredible adventure, which led me into kind of new age territory, which led me into the expressive arts from a Jungian shamanistic perspective, which mm. brought me back to the States, which eventually brought me back to CIIS, where I started to incorporate more of that transpersonal psychotherapy with the expressive arts, which led me to have the courage to be interested or drawn by things like human design, where it wasn't I have so much practice at that point, like getting off the conventional track, that it wasn't like a shock to my system. I had already disappointed my parents like a thousand times. 
that was an interesting response. I, I didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth. But, and I could keep going, but much more has happened. But I, I think that's a good start. Yeah. So would you say that was the beginning of your starting to go deeper into some specific systems? Because I think you, you studied holotropic breath work. Is that right? Were you doing... It, it wasn't holotropic breath work. Oh. It was a form of breath work where we were working with the trauma related to birth and also mm-hmm. using birth as a, a metaphor for creativity. Uh, but the woman who taught me was an American woman living in Europe who was very involved in water birth, like in actually facilitating birth. Mm-hmm. So it was both a psychological process and also a technique used to heal birth trauma and also to bring children into the world in a new way. Mm -hmm. And so this is also kind of an interesting thing. And I don't know, I've just primed for this in my life that I've, I've just always been very aware of shadow. Like, like I'm drawn to beautiful systems, but almost immediately, and this can be connected to the three, five, two, and maybe the 47 and a sensitivity to oppression and the, and the various increasingly subtle ways that oppression shows up. In, in systems or spiritual communities or political communities or professional communities, it doesn't matter. But I never had an experience of just getting into a system and not immediately being confronted with shadow so that my process was always about separating out the baby in the bathwater, always, even in the new age of the rebirthing that I did. I mean, boy, there were a lot of shadows there, which was what led to my writing, uh, Walking a Fine Line. I know you've studied a lot of different systems and yet I have this sense that you've never, you've never sort of stuck with just one and aligned yourself with it or been a representative of it. Maybe this is why, because you're saying with each system you've encountered, you've kind of seen the light and the shadow right side by side. Maybe because of that, it wasn't right for you to align yourself with just one. Oh, I love, I love this question, and I love that you're asking it of me. This is the irony, is that I go very deep when I get into systems. So it's not like, oh, I, you know, I bump into the shadow, and then I kind of, you know, chuck it. I'll still go very deep, right? So I was in the rebirthing community for eight years. I was very connected. I, was, I mean, I practiced it professionally. I, I mean, this was a huge part of my life. Human design, I went deep deep into that rabbit hole. And I did align enough with it to teach it and to write about it and to work, give, I don't know how many hundreds, even thousands of readings. I did go full on into the systems, but Mm -hmm. my work within it was refining. Maybe that's the Virgo in me or something. It was about realizing that all systems are only as powerful and healthy and balanced and integrity rich as the individuals that are using them. So I sort of had this, there's the track of the learning of the system. And then there's that meta perspective as how is it being used? Is it actually being used in a way that's truly empowering and freeing people Mm -hmm. that's actually connecting people in healthy ways? Or is it being used in ways that subtly is actually enslaving or trapping them? And all systems have both potentials. But that, wouldn't, that doesn't mean I would want to throw any of the systems that I've learned out at all. I love them. Mm-hmm. But it's true that I have not been able to say, this is my system. Mm-hmm. And, this, and this one I will promote and I will stick with with the rest of my life. I am like a transcendent include person. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is 
so frustrating. <laughs> like for the marketer in me, I'm like, oh my God, Rosie, just stay one place just long enough for people to recognize that this is something that you have to offer. But I, uh, maybe that's also the three, five. It's so interesting. It, it was like my really connecting with my gut and my intuition, which was the card that I drew for us today, mm. was what kind of led me to leave human design or at least integrated in such a way that got me cast out of Jovian archive. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of pain in my heart because I've loved the systems. I've loved the communities I've been a part of. Um, and I never wanted to be separate. I just wanted to bring more in. Yeah. But the, often the people, the leaders within the particular system didn't want me to do that. And so I was a reluctant outcast a reluctant heretic. Like I, I, I'm such a people pleaser, right? Like I, the last thing I want to do is rebel, but my whole life has been one giant, reluctant, unintentional act of rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does bring so, up a third line process for me that you're describing. It's like the making and breaking bonds and, you know, mm -hmm. testing and seeing if something actually works or not and what's actually going on there. Yes. You know, and the third line, bringing the change or the mutation. Yeah. Absolutely. And I have my heart wishes that the world is more embracing of the threes, you know, because mm -hmm. I think we could all benefit from that so much, that alchemy. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I think what drew me to human design is it is this incredible alchemy, right, between the soul and the body. You know, you're taking these two different entities or beings or forces or energies and you're, you're bringing them together and you're creating something entirely new. It's not like one plus one equals two. It's like one plus one equals the divine, right? Like something completely, this incredible magical synthesis uh, where there's room for paradox. For me, that's just kind of like the, the seed that fractal truth that then can be applied in so many different areas. Like, Oh my God, that's, that's creativity where we can take things that are very different from each other and find a way to let them like dance together without necessarily like forcing them into, you know, submission, but like allow something new to be born out of those things. And I think that's why I've tried to bring in things like expressive arts into human design, trying to bring human design and, and the gene keys together, even in those areas where there are a little, there's a little friction, mm -hmm. you know, there's cr something called creative friction, right? So I yeah. celebrate creative friction and sometimes I wish society did more also because it doesn't all the time. Yeah. I think it's actually just one of the greatest gifts that you bring in working with you. That was something just really liberating for me and maybe also liberating for the, the heretic in me to get to see that there's so much that can come out of that kind of a co-creative process with whatever you're working with. It's, I mean, it's a theme, I guess we see everywhere. It's like playing music or, or being really talented and refined in what you study, but then at some point it has to be creative or what's the point? <laughs> You're just regurgitating things. And, and I think that that creative piece is what we, a lot of us connect to in yeah. just being human, certainly as individuals. So true. Yeah. And when you, when you said that, I was thinking, yes, you learn the scales first and then you improvise. So yeah. it's not about, it's not about not learning the scales. Cause I know, yes. I mean, that's one of the shadows of spiritual 
explorers or wisdom seekers is they kind of do little shallow dips into a lot of different systems and they're not really going deep and they're not integrating it to, to the extent where they get a foundation that they can start to play with. But I wanted to share something with you like in relation to the systems thing that just came up for me when you were talking is it's like a model of the heroic path that my expressive arts therapy teacher in Denmark taught us. And I put it in my walking a fine line book mm. and it talks about like five, the five phases of the creative process or the heroic process. And I say this because really, I think what we're all here for is freedom. Like I really think that human design is so much about true liberation true liberation and when individuals are liberated we can come together and liberate the planet in ways where we're all bringing our authentic gifts to the table so anyway she talks about like how there are these five phases and so things start with chaos emptiness and that void and that could look like depression or, or just not knowing what's next in one's life and and I'm just giving you a really boiled down version of this, but then the next stage has to do with idealization. And it's in this idealization that you might get that special self-help book that like opens your mind or the great teacher, that great system that suddenly like answers all of those questions that you have at that stage. It's an amazing time when you, you're moving from emptiness or chaos to idealization because you feel like, oh my God, finally I have a manual that's going to teach me how to get out of this this like amorphous suffering blob that I'm in <laughs> into some kind of a direction, some kind of right use of my energy. But at some point in the idealization phase, you realize that, and especially if, if you start to identify too much with the ideal, it gets too black and white. It loses some nuance. And we idealize some people positively. We idealize some people negatively. There's sort of a right and a wrong way to do things. And at some point, we move into the confrontation phase, which is where we kind of realize that the one we idealized is imperfect. The one we've demonized maybe has some good qualities, including inside of ourselves. And we start to see the world in a much more nuanced way. Mm. Then comes the next phase, which is uh, forgiveness, where we have to kind of like take all of our projections home and integrate them inside and forgive others and forgive ourselves for kind of losing ourselves in order to find ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then comes freedom. And when you're truly in the freedom phase, you kind of know when it's time to hop into one of those other phases. You're not bound by any of those phases. And that's kind of how I see my relationship to the systems that I've learned in my life. So like now, it's not like human design is the only thing that I do. But there are moments when that's the only thing that's needed, right? Like for myself or for someone else. And there are other times it's like, you know what? You can know that system till the cows come home. But if you don't like learn how to trust someone and be loved by someone, even when you feel you're most lovable, if you're not working attachment issues through, it's not going to work for you or, or whatever it is, right? There are different moments that each thing is needed. And I, that's the liberation that I feel committed to supporting in people and trusting themselves to know what they need and when. And I think human design is such an incredible beginning to that process that breaks you out of conditioning in a way that no other system does, as far as I know. I've, I've never experienced a system that so methodically shows people a way out but it doesn't mean it's simple, 
right? Like, for example, like sometimes your true nature matches your conditioning. So like this is something really difficult for me. I've got this, you know, the channel of nurturing connected to my, you know, my yes, the gate of yes. That is a part of my definition, right? But I was conditioned to be such a caretaker at the expense of myself. So it's taken me a really long time to find out when is this authentic caretaking and when is this my conditioning coming through? It's not always so simple. Yeah, it's really interesting. It touches on something that Amy and I have been looking at where the conditioning seems to distort the life force or the definition. From the point of view of human design, we'll go into some of these not-self themes around like mental decision-making or the mind. And then we see that something that would be true and proper to the individual, a certain like frequency or channel definition, like you're saying, the 2750, then starts getting distorted into something that's actually not really correct for the individual. And for a generator, you know, a lot of the focus is self-oriented. So if the generator is not caring for themselves in that process and they're putting all their focus on the other, like maybe a projector would, then you see just a type distortion as well from the point of view of human design. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. We humans, we can distort anything. We can distort the best stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We can turn our gifts into shadows, you know, but we can also turn our shadows into gifts, you know, which is why I was so drawn to the, the Gene Keys perspective on human design. But I'm totally with you, John. I love what you're saying. That's a, like a whole conversation right there. Yeah. And that liberation piece, the freedom piece that you mentioned, what I hear you saying is if we can arrive in that place of having access to these systems or these tools or these techniques, but then not taking them on as a dogma or belief system or some sort of limiting factor. In other words, we just end up building another mental prison for ourselves. Is that the type of liberation that you're describing is something along those lines? Very much so. Because that's the other thing I've learned is that everything can be turned into another conditioning source, even something like human design, which was created to help us out, you know, of that prison. I've seen myself do it. I've seen so many people do that. That's why there's another goal than just getting someone to follow their strategy and authority. And it has to do with encouraging them to have like a loving, permission-giving, experimental relationship with their design, where they're not boxing themselves in in the name of freedom. I've just seen that happen so much. And it makes me so sad when I see that happen, because I know that the genuine impulse that draws people to the system is a desire to truly be living an authentic life. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, like not everybody's meant to, to get hum- into human design to the extent that maybe three of us have. Some people don't need much at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they just need like just a little bit and it's enough to just like, bam, like it just completely frees them if they can really live it and try it and learn from all of it. Like learn from the mistakes, learn from, like I like to say to people, just follow your conditioning like crazy for a week. Like just <laughs> be your not self, like full out and see what happens. Yeah. And you know, sometimes we, you know, sometimes we realize, Oh my God, this is horrible. But sometimes we realize there's a little, a little, you know, like in the yin yang sign, there's a little white and a black and a little black and the white. And sometimes in that, like for me, it'd be like, push the river for a week, just push it. <laughs> and I would, ex- from the human design perspective, I would expect that it would just be a freaking disaster. But every once in a while, 
I push through something and it's actually good for me. Like maybe I'll, t I'll make myself go dancing, even though I don't feel it's a genuine response. And then I start to learn to discern between response and resistance, fear, right? Sometimes fear can, sh can look or feel like response. Like a genuine no may not be a genuine no. It may be a protective strategy, yes. right? And sometimes a yes might be an addiction. These are the kinds of things things that I'm, I'm very interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just have to say it. I can just feel your design and frequency coming through so clearly in all of this. It's uh. really beautiful to see and to, to, to receive. Yeah. I love what you're saying too, because it does seem like a trap that a lot of people get into with human design and with all kinds of systems where we try to like do the system right or do our design right. And, it, and then it just becomes some kind of morality that that's actually very imprisoning. And, and then we're using it as another thing to judge ourselves with or to make ourselves wrong with. And I, I can feel it too, what John's saying. There's, there's something that just exudes from you that feels very creative and experimental. And that in and of itself to me feels very liberating. And I, I found myself in working with people over time, getting to that point as well of just wanting to say, go, go fuck it up, go do it all wrong and see what happens, you know, or go be pissed at the system, decide it's a bunch of junk and do something else and see how that could, but use it all, just use it all as an exploration and see what you find out. And I love what you're naming too, about these fine pieces around what is the difference between fear and response? What is a true yes versus an, a compulsive yes? Or what is a no versus an anxiety or a conditioned restriction on ourselves? And I don't think anybody can really discover that unless they play with it for themselves. It's like, I can't tell somebody else what a real no is for you. You can't read enough human design books or anything in any system or sit with a teacher enough for them to be able to clarify that for you. You've just got to go live it and find out. And then you'll know, you'll know what a real yes is for you. And you'll know what a compulsive yes feels like. And that you got to play with it to find out. It's a discovery process. Yes, absolutely. And also I was just thinking when you said that you're so good at, you're both so good at reflecting back what you're hearing and adding to it. <laughs> it's a good interviewer. So first there's the discerning, right, about addiction versus yes or compulsion, da, da, da. But then there's also the learning, which I, I think Rob really communicated very well, which I really love, is that when you're aligned, the result doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it ends up being a success or not. That's not the way we judge whether it was an authentic response or a, a healthy invitation to receive or or the right environment for us or whatever, that's not how we, it's not about what it looks like on the outside. You can have like a really healthy yes and it can lead to a total debacle, but it will be the correct debacle for you. Yes. And there's, there's an incredible freedom in that. And that was like one of the best gifts I ever got from human design was that realization. Yeah. So again, we're like, we're like, we're moving layer and layer upon layer of mind, the, the judging mind. It's like just removing more and more ways in which we judge reality or judge our lives or the trajectory of our lives. And it reminds me of that, you know, that story of the villager with the horse, mm -hmm. yes. you know, the horse 
first comes. Okay, I don't have to get into it. I know people are listening know it. But anyway, the whole point is we don't know. We can't judge by the outcome of any particular decision, whether it was actually like the best one or the ideal one or not. If there's some reverence we have to have towards the unfolding mystery of life. And that if we're just, you know, kind of tuned in enough to what feels natural and authentic inside of us, we're going to be okay. It's like we will be led down a crazy journey that will ultimately give us the correct struggles, but they, it won't necessarily remove struggle. It's not about getting rid of struggle. And maybe that's something I learned because I got the channel of struggle. It's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> I might as well just get really good at get, making sure I have the right ones for me. Yes. So instead yeah. of trying to remove them, what's the point? Why incarnate on planet Earth? <laughs> yeah. You know, especially yeah. at these times. The way you describe the right yes, is it brings to mind the 29 again, but not having the 46, mm-hmm. finding that right yes, that right thing to commit to is enough. You don't, it doesn't matter what happens or what the experience or where it goes. Oh, God bless. I got to remember that one. <laughs> it's so funny too. Like it doesn't matter how long you're in this, there's always something new to kind of integrate and remind oneself and just and it's not even like I'm living my my life from my mind anymore. I don't think I'd make any really big decisions from a mental perspective. I'd make, I don't think I really do that much, but boy, can I overcommit? Like that's just something that I really, I think this is going to be a lifetime of learning for me because so often I commit to things that I love and people I love and projects that mean so much to me that I think are completely aligned with my nature and my creative force. And I just don't have the bandwidth (laughs) to follow it through, which my defined ego heart needs to do, you know, it needs to do it. So I put my heart under so much pressure, which is why I have these occasional total full body breakdowns really only, only twice in my life, but you know, they were pretty heavy handed. But you know what? Thank God it happened because I wouldn't be living in Santa Fe if it didn't happen the first time. So that was sometimes actually- big, wonderful changes happen because of a breakdown that comes from not fully living in alignment with who we are. Yes. So again, like everything can be folded back into this, per- this, this perfection, even when it looks bad and wrong and all those kinds of things. It's, it's the, the responsibility is about responding. It's about having the ability to respond to whatever it is that comes out of each of our decisions. So in a way, it's like this, it's this never-ending flow. It's never too late. It's, it's never too late to make the most of a mess, you know, to make the most <laughs> of lemonade. Like, it's never too late to do that. And, and in a way, I almost feel like that's like an even more important lesson for us to learn as humans than getting any system right. We're constantly be, being given lemons, you know, in order to make lemons. And these are so, so cliche what I'm saying, but that's what the wisdom keepers are about, right? That's what the wisdom keepers are about. And I think that's what the gene keys really kind of hones in on is, is leaning into suffering and allowing something beautiful to grow out of that, like trusting in those dark, horrible places where the mind is only going to judge them as wrong, you know, trusting there's like a seed of potential of beauty of possibility inside of them. If we allow ourselves to be open to that possibility. Yeah. Well, you're already starting to go there. So I've, there are a million things I think we could talk about in terms of human design and gene keys. 
maybe I can start with this specific piece and then we can go wherever. But we've been talking lately about, you know, when you look at human design and the way it's taught, there's all of this emphasis on the mechanics and there's all of this emphasis on strategy and authority. And if you just follow strategy and authority, in some ways, it's almost very action oriented. Like mm-hmm. if you experiment and engage with strategy and authority, that's going to bring you some deconditioning. It's going to bring you some realization, some, some greater awareness and some greater alignment with what's natural to you. Mm-hmm. And then we look at Gene Keys and, and I'd love to hear in part about that movement for you from, from human design to Gene Keys. But in specific, mm-hmm. I'm really curious about this concept of contemplation because Gene Keys seems to have this very big focus on contemplation. And in some ways it kind of like completely let go of the mechanics and the, and the type and the following any of that and came into this realm of contemplation. So can you Mm -hmm. speak a little bit to just what that term is about in Gene Keys and maybe weave in your transition from one to the other or your synthesis of, of both? Sure. That's sure. too big a question. <laughs> I'll, you know, my open mind is like, oh. <laughs> um, okay. So I guess one thing I can say was that it was through following my design that I was led to the gene keys. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, human design is the most practical and empowering system it's a spiritual practice of decision-making. It's like, I, I really feel like it has the potential to be a spiritual practice. And sometimes it leads to action. Sometimes it leads to inaction. Yes. But the decision point is still an action. It's an internal, like, stand, taking a stand, mm-hmm. right? So which, which is different than this kind of, I can see where you're going with the contemplation. is kind of like fluid. You just sit and just percolate on things and... <laughs> It's not so much about, you know, like, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? Before I go into that, I just want to acknowledge that something called integral human design does exist, mm-hmm. where they're bridging human design together with the gene. Where basically, you still have the strategy and authority, although it's maybe held a little bit more lightly, a little more transpersonally, where you don't want to confuse the map with the territory. But they are bringing in a lot of the aspects of human design together with these concepts of the gene keys, mm-hmm. uh, which includes the spectrum of consciousness, right? Which is where we're, we're not just looking at the body graph as like a, a two-dimensional thing, but we're like adding three dimensions. And we're looking at it from how it gets expressed when we're coming from a fear place. Like what, what would be a fearful response, which might be repressive or reactive. And then you look at it from the gift perspective, what a body graph looks like when we're coming from a place of wanting to be of service, mm-hmm. using our gifts in order to be of service, and what the body graph, how it would express itself when we're coming from a kind of like a, a total ego death perspective where we're dissolving into the one. And, and each particular gate has different flavors of that. I don't know. I don't know what there's so many different words for God or whatever, but like that kind of that divine state. They're all kind of addressing that. And from a gene keys perspective or integral human design perspective, it's not like, oh, either you're coming from fear or shadow or you're coming from the gift or it's not, it's not like that. It's a, it's a dance. It's fluid. One thing leads to another. It can all be happening simultaneously. Uh, and it's not even a three phase thing. It's just something that makes it a little more easy, just like all models do, but they're all limited. 
but it does include a lot of human design more practical concepts mm -hmm. in terms of like some people respond, some people are here to be invited, some people are, you know, that kind of stuff. So I did want to just kind of say that that's in there. But when we're talking about the Gene Keys and Richard, okay, so again, I think of human design, I think empowerment. Mm -hmm. When I think of Gene Keys, I think compassion. And I think of the, the kind of healing that happens when you're not judging anything or fighting anything, but you're kind of like surrendering to whatever is. And you're taking a pause in order to be with whatever is arising without acting one way or the other in the beginning. And then allowing kind of like an internal alchemy to take place, which then allows for an organic action to come out from you that isn't coming from following some kind of a recipe. But it doesn't mean that action won't come out of that. Mm -hmm. It's just it won't be reaction, mm -hmm. right? So he talks all about you when you're contemplating, you take a pause, and that if you really kind of allow and embrace what's happening, it can inspire a pivot. So he talks about pivoting, mm -hmm. and he, he does this so much better than I would do. But for me, there's something in the pivot that feels connected to decision-making, making, making yeah. a new decision. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that Gene Keys does, which I appreciate, you can get into it without having your absolutely perfect birth data. It's much more accessible to people in that way, to all people, regardless of whether they can really know what their design is. That's one of the one limitations of human design, you know, because time makes a huge difference in a person's design. I mean, I've, oh my God. And I think that, that that was a part of Richard's own, I mean, he's had, he, you know, he speaks about all this stuff himself, but a part of his own evolution had to do with moving away from like numbers, which, where there's that potential shadow of getting too attached to numbers and channels and this and that, like where the identity can kind of merge to moving towards archetypes that apply to everyone, kind of moving into universal waters, where if you go like, if you like look deep enough into the eye of God, you'll find the devil. If you look deep enough into the eye of the devil, you'll find God. If you go deep enough into any one gene key and have a genuine Satori, it will change your life. It will change your trajectory mm -hmm. and it will align you. This is kind of interesting too, because in the Gene Keys, he talks a lot about, in the end, it's about aligning with the heart, not human design heart, but like the heart of the human being that is in unity with all of the cosmos. And when we're really coming from this self-embracing, other, allowing, loving, compassionate place, we automatically get like this chiropractic adjustment of the soul and become aligned with the cosmic order. And that will guide us no matter what. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. Am I, am I touching on it? Yeah, I think you're getting to it. It's actually making me think of some human design teachers I've seen out there, like Genoa Bliven is, is, seems to really do this well. And even the way if you get some really good books on the I Ching, the way they'll guide you, a lot of those have a directive in there to sit, like sit with, pick one of these frequencies, pick one of these gates, one of these gene keys yeah. and sit with it, you know, contemplate it, take it in as a, as a prompt or as a cone or as a, as something that if you let it kind of permeate you 
and then you let yourself in a creative way or in a in a receptive way explore it you'll probably find your own wisdom in it you'll find your own interpretation of it you'll find what it touches in you and in your own life and i guess i'm curious about in terms of like directing people or working with people mm-hmm. like how do you tell someone to contemplate something what is that practice seems to me like for you some part of that is is a very creative and maybe even artistic expressive process and i guess i'm curious about how do we make contemplation practical <laughs> or how do we how do we guide people in how to have that experience because i imagine for some people they they probably feel like well what does that even mean i'm just sitting here by myself i have this book with these words like what what does contemplation mean you know it's true absolutely and then the contemplate contemplation yeah <laughs> There was one thing I just wanted to add to yeah. the contemplation is that when you're really contemplating, he talks about it as being a different, like in between meditating and concentrating. It's not concentrating. You're not like applying a lot of like mental effort. You're dropping a little bit beneath that. So it's not, I mean, there might be thoughts that are walking through, but it's a little deeper than that where it can actually be an embodied experience. It doesn't just have to be an intellectual experience. And I just wanted to add that to the yeah. piece. And again, you know, you should have Richard Rudd on here because he'd just do so much more justice to this than me. You know, we are unique vessels, right? So the way that I might support someone to contemplate is going to be so different from, from someone else. I'm always interested in the non-mental. Like, I'm always interested in the, like, how can we get past the, the, the brain mm-hmm. and explore this from another perspective, Right. There is a bit of a controversy in, in the Gene Keys world about whether one should even be giving readings or not. You know what I mean? And like, what, it, what does it mean to give a reading, right? It's yeah. more, I think for Richard, it's more about you, you hold space for someone to kind of discover for themselves what these terms and archetypes mean. You don't say, oh, well, you have this and you have this and this is what it means. Although I have a feeling a lot of people are giving readings and a lot more people will be giving readings. And so that's where someone like me comes in because... I know it doesn't work to tell people, here's this incredible system, don't give readings. <laughs> people are going to do it. They're going to do it. So then it's about, okay, as long as they're going to do it, how can we support them in doing it in ways that, that honor the sovereignty of that being and their own kind of unique creative way of connecting with this information? This is why also he doesn't, eat, Richard doesn't even call this a system. He calls it a transmission because it's not a method. It's not like it's not like a very specific map. It's a it's a portal that opens people up to their own imaginal selves that then can build in their chrysalis their own perfect kind of butterfly, right? So I just wanted to say that too. So yeah, so like if I were gonna work with someone with a jinkies, and I used to do this and I don't give readings anymore, I just don't do it. I you give people readings for me. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> it's like the best gift I ever had in my life. It's such a, such a pleasure. But like one thing might be finding alternative ways to get people to connect with these words. And the word will have a frequency, but that it'll have different associations for different people. And like I could even have someone say, well, like I have this whole big box of like images of postcards. I might say like, okay, so let's take the word oppression. Pick four pictures that for you have a, a, a flavor of oppression in them 
And now just tell me what, what comes up for you when you look at these pictures. And, and when you pick them, don't think so much about it. Let some other part of you pick those pictures. I'm just giving you like a super simple example. Or let's do an oppression dance. You know, what I learned from my, you know, work as a, as a, not just expressive arts, but a drama therapist is that insight often comes through the action, which is why we like human design, but also why it can be nice to bring in some action and embodiment into things like the gene keys so that people can start to really feel it in their bodies. So for example, when I did, a, I taught a workshop at a place in uh, Sonoma, California, together with this really lovely man from the Center for Spiritual Living. Together, we, we co-led a workshop that was kind of based on the Wisdom Keepers where we did shadow work together. We kind of used the Wisdom Keepers to inspire shadow work. And part of that had to do with embodying the shadow. And what happens when we embody the shadow is often so surprising. Like people are expe expecting to feel like, oh, this is going to be awful. This is the last thing I want to own or embody or whatever. And they feel so free. Like for me to embody the shadow of selfishness, I cannot think of anything more fun. Like, <laughs> like in a playful, safe environment, right? Like if I take it on the road, that's a, it's a different situation. But I think when you engage with something in a non mental, nonverbal way, it gives you an opportunity to access deeper layers of what these archetypes mean for you. But that's just sort of my kind of thing. Not everybody would do that. Mm -hmm. Even just having a conversation with someone, like let's say I have one of my big shadows is in my activation sequence or incarnation cross has to do with like dominance. Yes. Like if someone were to say, oh, well, do you relate to that as a shadow? I'd be like, are you freaking kidding me? I can't think of anything more forbidden in my life than to be dominating of another human being. Bingo. That's why it's a shadow, right? Like what is forbidden is our shadow. So they, oh, okay. So it's been forbidden for you. Well, let's look at, look at that. What would have happened if you did express more dominance? And then as I move through that experience, I start to realize, oh, well, what are ways that I actually am dominating? Or what are ways I actually am arrogant? The fact that I don't want to ever be arrogant is actually pretty arrogant, mm -hmm. if you think about it, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so then we start to play with the words. Well, I don't relate to that. Well, what word might you relate to? I'd relate to this one. Okay, good. Let's go there. So you're like following the person's own psyche. And it's almost like a Jungian, a little, what, they, what is it, alliteration process or something, where you're just kind of, you're following the stream of the unconscious, you know, modalities that that feels fun, if that's in alignment with yourself, so that you kind of, you go into the portal and you open, open, open up, and then suddenly comes epiphanies or inspirations or like gut feelings, like, holy shit, I'm going to change my life, you know, like big things can come out of it, but it's a different process. I need both. That's why I've done the, what I've done. So I'm not like, oh yeah, that's, that substitutes what human design offers. I don't think it does, mm -hmm. but I think it offers something human design doesn't. Yes. And for me, the perfection happens through the synthesis of the two, but not for everybody. Like some people don't need the gene keys. Some people don't need human design. Mm -hmm. And one last thing I'm going to say, and then I'll shut up is that, you know, the gene keys does, I mean, they are rolling out so many you know, programs and all kinds of things where people are being guided through processes and there's sharing and there's teachings and there's interaction. And so I think that there's going to be more and more of that where people will get guidance about how to work with it. Yeah. And that, that's already happening. But, you know, it's, it's different.
mm-hmm. but similar. Yeah. Connected. Yeah, I I love what you're saying because I think it's it is easy to look at a word like contemplation or a directive like that, and it it can seem like a solitary process. I know that's where for me, given my design, that's where I would tend to take it. You, you're describing all of these possible ways to contemplate that actually involve being supported by another person, being witnessed potentially by another person, having a, an encouraging, empowering other there who's saying, just go ahead, play with it, or go here, or try this. I feel like you're being like a beacon of the most inspired third line experience <laughs> I think I've ever had. <laughs> so I just, I, I, I'm loving it so much. I think you're pointing at something that feels not only creative, but supportive and like you don't have to do it alone. And, and there is something that comes across in human design that can feel very solitary. It can feel like, and even in Ra's presentation of things, like he was such a loner. So you could. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. The, the cranky, the cranky heretic. So I just really love what you're bringing to that because it might be a very solitary process. It might be natural for some people to have it mostly be a solitary process, but then I think it's beautiful to see that you can use these systems in ways that can be very creative, very co-creative. I mean, it's certainly the, the business that we're all in here. It's a way we can come together and, and support each other and experiment together. All the things you named about contemplation were, were non-solitary activities. So oh, I love that. True. <laughs> I love, I mean, I, I just, I think it's beautiful. Well, let me just say one thing, which is we are now engaged in a co-contemplative process because you're asking me questions that are getting me to go places I never thought about. I didn't think I'd be sharing anything that I'm sharing today. It's because of the synergy between us that I'm going places I wouldn't normally go. And maybe some things I'm offering are allowing you to go places you wouldn't go, right? So this is contemplation in action in a trinity. And I will say, Richard is a line one. He's got a lot of line one. So he is, like, if it were up to him, this would be a very deep, inner contemplative process it'd be very individual I don't know if you're familiar with like the star pearl in the gene keys which is a whole other thing where you know you're looking at your your branding and relating and creativity and where you are in culture and your vocation and all these kinds of things and then there are different lines and different lines can point to the role you play inside of a group or a culture it could play a role in for example, in relating, I have a line too. So I'm all about the relationship, right? So I'm going to find ways to explore whatever I want to explore in a relational context. That is not for everybody, but it is for me. It is for me. And I love that. I love that the Jinkies looks at that. And I know human design does too, like with the, you know, the business model and pentas and stuff like that. But I love when we start looking at groups of people coming together, each being totally real, and then like creating something so much more wonderful than they ever could create on their own. I'm really interested in that. So I love the way in which Richard is distilling some of that information, and the love and hope that he brings with his vision. It feels very soothing for my soul, especially during these times. And he, and I think Ra talked about this too, you know, that in the end, you know, we're kind of in this kind of transmutation we're going through as a species. In the end, we're not going to be like these individuals, 
you know, we're going to be group entities moving through space. Like the fractal is going to start to really, really work. And so in order for that to happen, we got to do that individuation process and that differentiation process so that we're nice and aligned and our beacon signals, you know, our signals are, are clear and the other people are, their receptors are clear and we know how to hook up with each other. But eventually it's not going to be about me, 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 right? Eventually it's going to be about the we, you know, which is what the whole, you know, my whole design to blossom was about is like how to reconcile the me and the we. You know, because I feel that human design is very much about let's get this me thing in order. Mm -hmm. uh, but that can, that can have a shadow as well, right? That sometimes people are like, well, you know, the whole thing's a joke and <laughs> I don't care. I'm just going to do what's right for me and, you know, let, let all the cities burn. You know, like, if, you know, like that could be an interpretation. You know, as long as I'm doing it correctly, who cares, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be a very compassionate approach, although I know deep down it is. Mm -hmm. can be also. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, you guys have me talking so much. You know what this is? This is like projector heaven for me. Oh, oh good. <laughs> I've got more questions. I'm holding back. I'm <laughs> really? I know. I, I can feel it. I'm like, I got I to gotta let John get in there because I know oh, he's yeah. got stuff to say. <laughs> I don't want to change the subject too much, but you did mention the dominance theme earlier and you, you drew mm. the intuition card when we started and my intuition keeps going back to your 45 and your cross of rulership and the 4521. And one of the things I know about that channel or that I understand about that channel is that it can be an interesting channel for an individual to have themselves. It generally works better as an electromagnetic is one of the things that's said and Rao talked about. And so I'm very curious about what your experience is of the 4521, but also the rulership aspect of the activation sequence and the cross, what does that look like for you? What is your experience of that? You have no idea. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. It's all unconscious. What do I know? Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, when I first learned about my design, that was one of the biggest moments of laughter for me when I learned that I had that channel. That's what I loved about human design, too. I was, like, so surprised by different things, right? And I think maybe because of my conditioning to be such a caretaker and go with other people's flow and do everything in my power not to make anyone ever feel uncomfortable or to dominate them or to misuse power and my sensitivity about misuses of power and, and also having a mother who was, who was very strong-willed, very fiery woman, and a sister who was very fiery as well. So, this was an example of how it took me time to realize that that was actually a part of my nature. It was like, whoa, I would never, ever have thought that I have a, you know, a strong, healthy will and a defined ego and the capacity to kind of make money or, <laughs> or like play some kind of a leadership role inside of a community I and mean, everything about leadership. You know, again, it's, it's three, five. It's not it's in the unconscious, the five part, like being a leader. That's another thing that I, I've had to slowly get comfortable with even that concept. And I think the three helped me realize, oh, there are a lot of ways of being a leader. Can, you can be a leader just by, by being free, just daring to be real, uh, or being an emotional leader, like, you know, crying in most interviews that I do. <laughs> you know, there are, many, there are many ways of doing that. And I think that that helped me slowly to make peace with this part of myself, which I think actually, honestly, John, if I'm being really honest with you, I feel almost like I'm just starting to make peace with it. 
Mm. Like I have been so afraid, like even now that I'm allowing myself to dominate this conversation, like nobody's business. <laughs> Cause Amy, you know, I, I, I mean, I'll talk, but I'm a listener, right? I'm a listener. I, I spend my whole life listening to people, reflecting them, being like a, a clear mirror with that open G center with nothing in it, you know, the open mind, let, let's hear what other people have to say, you know, open solar plexus, you know, constantly metabolizing the emotional field. And so like being, the one who actually allows something to come through me and trusts that it could be a act of service and not just dominant control over I am dominating the conversation. This is a big edge for me. Interestingly, we in human design, it's the channel of the materialist, and then I have the channel of struggle, right? So I have been a struggling materialist <laughs> whose who's like three-five journey has pushed me into becoming an, an entrepreneur, which I never would have thought, but I've never held down a nine to five job, maybe six months in my life. I've always been self-employed, right? So that's an example of that channel. Never like, oh, I want to be in charge, but more like, I don't know where else I could do what I feel called to do. I, I, I kind of guess, guess I better figure it out myself. And then I kind of had to learn how to, how to like make money doing this. And that means marketing. And that means telling the world who I am and what I believe in and stepping into leadership so, and like being visible. This has been the hardest thing in my life. And my biggest con conditioning message was do not shine. Do, no matter what, do not shine. It hurts the people that you love. Nothing good can come of it. That was the main message. But being forced by my nature and my ruthless attachment, my fierce attachment to authenticity into the entrepreneurial world, I have had to become visible and step out into the world, into that projection field, which still makes me nauseous every time. It's actually been like one of the best gifts of all, like that I've had, it's put me, it's kept me on my growth edge. And I'm starting to feel after all these years of putting myself out there in spite of myself with nausea, with just like, oh my God, I would so rather hide, right? Like my environment is the cave. Just put me back in the cave. Let me stay in the cave. But it actually is helping me understand that there are many ways to be of service. And I can be in charge like as a sovereign being. That's really what it means. Like a sovereign being as a hub inside of a group of rebels, really. I mean, the people who are drawn to me are not conventional people. You know, they're nice people, but they're not conventional people. And like having my job be supporting them and trusting their own natural impulse and knowing that my voice is not here to oppress them, but is actually here to uplift and liberate them. And mostly I do that by embodying liberation, not by telling people what to do, which is why I keep throwing out all my degrees because I don't want to be the person telling people what to do, but I will be the person to ask them questions that will help them find out what they need to do to be in alignment with themselves. Did I at all answer your question? Yes. yes. I feel like I danced around it a lot because it's, you know, honestly, I have no idea how to relate to this one. I have to jump in. Sorry, John. <laughs> I was going to let you have it. I'll give up after this. But 
I don't know. It's very synchronistic to me that you're saying this is I've been looking at this theme of dominance. I don't necessarily have it in my chart, but I'm having the experience in this conversation with you of such a, of just it being such a gift for you to dominate the conversation and to share what you have to say. And somehow when you were talking, I just kept thinking, well, what would the world be like if the sun didn't dominate us, you know? And not from a place of sort of being the expert or telling people what to do, but whether you call it the embodiment of liberation or just the energy, the creative energy that lives in you or your fierce connection to, to what you believe in and, and what you love, the energy itself is, to me, feels very dominating in a way that's like, please dominate me with that energy. Look at all the crap that's out in the world that we're all getting dominated, all this you know, yeah. stuff we're being fed all the time. If anybody's going to dominate anything, the feeling that I get in the moment is like, please let it be Rosie. You please dominate us because there are a lot of things out there that I would prefer not to take in. If I were going to surrender to or drink in or be receptive to a power, let it be you is, is part of what I feel from this experience. It's a frequency thing. If you're grounded in yourself and your own frequency and you're being you, then the dominance is not going to feel necessarily oppressive or too much for the other person, or it's not going to, you know, taste good or be something they don't want to take in. It's going to, there's a certain cleanliness or purity or something coming through Mm -hmm. the individual that's then either shared in a supportive way or as an act of service. And that's a totally different experience than a lot of what else we we're taking in on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Same, same. Thank you. Thank you both. Like you can't get the gift version of dominance, which I think is synergy, and then ultimately, ultimately communion. If people like you don't invite it out, like I, I feel like you are inviting something out of me. I don't know. That's allowing a certain kind of shining or a wash. Like it's sort of washing through us an energy that maybe at some level we all share. And in the end, you know, right now it's my turn to talk, right? Because you said, oh let's interview Rosie. I'm like, okay, whatever, I'll, I'll talk. But we could literally be sitting in the same situation and I could be asking you questions and bathing in your frequency. Maybe that's ultimately what we need too, right? Is that this dance, like if we know that our intention is for everyone to shine at different times in different ways, and sometimes we're receiving and sometimes we're transmitting, but in the end, it kind of evens out, then maybe it's not so scary when it's our turn. I think I was so afraid that it would never even out. You know, if I took too much space, then it would, it would just kind of leave this giant deficit in someone else. I think it was a part of the conditioning that I got that I hesitated to ever do it. And actually you're helping me understand that sometimes if I let myself do it, like who knows, maybe after this conversation, because you've had to listen so much, you're going to dominate your next conversations in a whole new way. Like you're going to give yourself more permission and who knows, I, I kind of am a little envious of the people that get to listen to you after you've just been on the receiving end of this, I think they're going to be very lucky people to hear how this metabolized and joined together with your own genius. Cause I know you both have a ton of that, even though that hasn't been the focus of this particular conversation, me drawing that out. Although Amy, I know you well enough to know your genius pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> I can feel yours, John. Anyway. Yeah.
Can I ask you one more question about your cross and the 45? Yeah, give it a shot. All right. (laughs) So is there a connection between that and your place in New Mexico or where you're at now? I I don't know much about it, but Amy said that you were living in New Mexico or maybe an artist community or something. And is that connected to this 45 dominance, 4521 rulership theme that that we've been looking at? Hmm. I'm sure it is. And I have a feeling I'm still getting to find out how it's connected. Um, But I would say like one of the, we didn't really talk so much about like when I got into human design, but one of the simple thematic invitations that I got was to sort of see that I had this super individualistic stream and then a very tribal aspect of my design. And these two parts of me have always been a bit at odds. You know, like the the communal part is always wanting to give and take and be a part of things. And I like, I'm like a magnet for communities, but that like my artist self is like, all I want to do is disappear into my cave and just follow my own truth and not be responsible for everyone while I'm accumulating responsibilities. And this has been like sort of an ongoing theme in my life. So I'm living not in an artist community, although there are many artists here, but it's a co-housing community. It's interesting. Some people here know about human design, which is really cool. And there's a lot of people in New Mexico, including Genoa and La Cita, who I totally love, Genoa Bliven um, and La Cita Shalev. Um, they're also in New Mexico. I'm sure that I was guided here energetically because there's some kind of a fractal thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm supposed to play a bridging role between the various communities, you know, between Genoa and Richard Rudd or wh- whatever it is. What do I like to talk about them? Kind of like Freud and Jung, you know, this, <laughs> like they're so connected and ooh, there's stuff there. And But anyway, I do feel that there's a role for me to play here. And then in, in addition to that, like when I think about my whole activation sequence and my purpose being the 26 line five, which in Gene Key's terms has to do with artfulness. Mm-hmm. There's something about the energy of New Mexico, which reminds me so much of you, Amy, as I imagine you know, mm-hmm. um, that feels so like so connected to the earth and the animal kingdom and artistry. Like the artists here are just crazy good. And then I got invited by Richard several years ago, but now we're finally working on it to work on this dream arc aspect of the transmission, which is all about like indigenous wisdom. It's about animal totems. And here I am, like, as soon as I walked into the Albuquerque airport for the first time in my life, it was like, all there were were animal totems. It was like ravens and foxes and donkeys. And it was crazy. Um, And and so I feel spiritually guided to this place. The way that we got here was very surprising. Maybe there's some kind of a communion or some hub-like communal role I'm meant to be here that is beyond my co-housing community. But may have something to do with the various communities I have around the world, including uh, the Universal Love Alliance. I don't know if you, if you know about the, these people in Uganda that I've been working with. That was another thing that brought me here. I, okay, so anyway, I'm involved in this human rights organization in Uganda where these people are just, they're just unbelievable. And basically what they do is they teach about inclusion and diversity to religious leaders, faith leaders, cultural leaders, political leaders in the most unfriendly, dangerous environment you can possibly imagine. I mean, these are people that, like in the Jinkies, they talk about returning non-love with love. 
That's what they do on a daily basis. They talk to people who basically want them executed for being who they are, and they find ways to love them and, and dialogue with them and help open their minds and hearts. So anyway, I found these people. I don't know if you know I did this, the Face of Love is Universal video campaign a while back where I had people all over the world hold up a wisdom keeper and say the face of love is universal in different languages. They were my very first volunteers, these people from Uganda. And then it turns out, this is like where fractals come in, right? It turns out that several of the people on the board with me live in Santa Fe. Like Santa Fe was never on my, it was never on my radar as a potential place to go. So again, it's another way in which I feel this tribal the pull of my, the artfulness and the, and the communion and the, and the synergy and the, all that stuff. I feel that and the healing of oppression uh, is all kind of coming together in this particular area. And I'm in the process of uncovering how I will be changed by this environment with my open G in such a way that I am better able to serve from this place, whoever I'm meant to serve. Another really wild fractal thing like I then I'll, I'll shut up but uh, okay so I had a, a webinar recently uh, where I did a collective transformation spread using the wisdom keepers and at the end of it I shared a performance done by the living arts playback theater in the bay area where they did they did a spontaneous improvisational uh, piece around one of the wisdom keepers of compassion and humanity and I just found out today that my Bulgarian resellers know that particular, they know everybody in that playback theater. Wow. I mean, th these things are happening all the time. Like this, like, oh, like people are finding each other in the craziest of ways. And I'm sure I'm meant to be here. And we will find out why over time. I have this sense that the way you work with people sort of shifts around um, in terms of your availability and whether you're, which, which aspect of your work you're more mm -hmm. focused on, but I'm curious about what your availability is, I guess, right now, or what, what your focus is for work, or maybe you're, you're resting and you're taking, you're taking a break for a while. I don't know, but I, I'm curious about how can people get their hands on you <laughs> or, or get some access to you if they, if they want to. Well, that is a very good question. So again, this is where this is where trusting in my in in my intuitive gut has really come in handy because I've had to make very difficult choices like leaving the Bay Area, saying goodbye to all my clients. Uh, it was so hard, and shifting my, the direction of my work away from counseling practice into art projects, writing, I've been doing a ton of writing, and I created an online school. So now what I'm trying to do is more online classes. I just um, created the School for Wisdom Keepers. So that's one way for people to, you know, take, right now they're self-study classes, and eventually I'm going to probably get over myself and over my shyness. Again, this is where it's hard to know. Where is it just my shyness and introversion? And when is it a no, right? I mean, sometimes it's hard to know. And sometimes we have to remove the pressure to find out, right? So I've, I've removed some pressure from myself this past year, and now I'm finding out, okay, maybe I can say yes to the physical and nervousness discomfort of doing live trainings. Uh, maybe that is the right kind of discomfort for me. It took me a while to, to get to that place. So I will probably be taking some people through 
like I have an online course called uh, Walking a Fine Line. So I made a course out of the book, uh, which has to do with kind of working with in, just being an in integrity, <laughs> whether we're a wisdom seeker or a wisdom keeper, and we work professionally with other people. Mm-hmm. And then I, I created um, my first class based on the Wisdom Keepers Oracle deck, which is called the Wisdom Wheel of Integrity, which I'm super excited about. And uh, also I have like a book that isn't, I mean, I, I haven't gotten around to publishing it yet, but it's ready. Wow. Cool. I do have the online class. So that's, that's a really fun way. People want to like really integrate the, the Wisdom Keepers into their life and they're really kind of struggling with what's happening in the world and wanting to find a way to be a sacred activist that also honors their own unique path and voice and way of expressing themselves in the world. I think that might be a really interesting class for them. I'm only seeing old clients when they call me in great need. Like if they're like, (laughs) Rosie, I just totally need a checkup. I'm like, I'm like, all right, come on, that's fine. But I'm not seeing new clients right now. I'm not giving readings. I highly recommend to people that people listening may know about John and Amy. You can learn more about them if you look at the information on this particular podcast uh, descriptor. They're wonderful. I recommend them a thousand percent. And that that may change, but right now that's kind of, and then I'm working on the Dream Arc, which is this huge project I'm doing with Richard Rudd. And I have so many, oh my God, I have so many classes that I've created curriculum for. I just haven't produced them yet in terms of the video teaching and the illustrating and exercises and stuff like that. But I, it's that 29 out of control. It's the 29 out of control, but it's also my nature. It's also my nature. So I just have to kind of rein it in a little bit. Yeah. But it's been really nice, actually, to, uh, to have a period of time where I could focus more on what wants to come in and out of me, as opposed to, you know, 30 years listening and only letting things come out if they were reflecting something coming towards me. It's a very different orientation, and it's a good one for me to sink my, you know, my teeth and heart into for a while. Well, I just love it. I feel really inspired by you in general. And just the the creativity flowing from you is so visceral. It's just it's just really palpable and wonderful to be around. And I feel very excited at this point in your life with everything you've created that even if people aren't interacting with you one-on-one, that there's so much that you've put, that you have put out there that you've poured yourself into that people can have access to and learn from and explore. So thanks for being I with just- us. No, I just wanted to add, I don't know if people know, but I do, I do also offer a Design to Blossom course. It's online course in human design, integrating the gene keys. And that there's a book for that. And there's, I also created a resource book um, where I answer a lot of these like tricky questions that come up inside the human design community. Like what's the difference between a, you know, a genuine response and addiction, or when is human design not enough, or where does therapy come in with all that, like those kinds of questions and looking at the different perspectives on, on strategy and authority, because we have so many different voices in our community around that, like some controversial stuff. So that's something that is really, you know, easy to get on Amazon. It's just designed to blossom resource book for people who are already into human design, but kind of want to get into some of those nitty gritty territories. I just wanted people to know about that too. Thank you. 
That's awesome. Well, we'll include all the details um, so people can can find those resources. And what a fabulous synthesizer you are. And we'll probably ask you to come back another time if you're willing to, because I know, I think we both have a lot more <laughs> we would love to talk about with you. So we'll, we'll see. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been such a pleasure. Total honor. So much love and gratitude to you both. Mm. Truly. Thank you for bathing me in your, your listening presence, your wisdom. Okay. Mwah. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please review us and share. For more information about us and to connect with others on this experimental journey, please visit us at humandesigncollective.com. You can also learn more by exploring our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast, courtesy of Role Model. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for more upcoming episodes on the same channel.